Hey guys, my name is Emily. I'm your host for Keeping Up With Your Breasties. This season is dedicated to sharing other people's stories about self-advocacy or their experience with the medical community. Today, we are joined by Cherie, and she's going to tell us her story. I was diagnosed at the age of 35 um, when I got my first mammogram uh, with um, stage 1A invasive ductal carcinoma of the left breast. I had two um, areas. They were like very tiny. Um, they were undetectable. They were found uh, strictly by mammogram. Uh, it was just a routine mammogram that my OB decided to order. Um, they had asked me if I had any symptoms or if I noticed anything. Uh, I didn't notice anything because at the time I was breastfeeding. So I just thought that my nipples looked funny because I was breastfeeding. Well, anyways, um, you know, I started getting suspicious when the tech kept running in out of the room when she was doing my ultrasound. Um, and then they asked me, oh, well, how long has your left nipple been puckered? And I was like, oh, I didn't know that it was. I can't really see from my angle. Um, so then, you know, I started getting nervous. I thought I thought something's wrong. Um, and that progressed to like more testing and more testing. And then, you know, the more they kept and doing more testing, I knew there was going to be something. Uh, so when I finally got the call, I was actually working at Clear Lake Regional Hospital in the emergency department, all the way gowned up in a patient's room, a very large diabetic patient. And I was like in isolation. And so they pulled me out of the room and they said, hey, you know, you have a phone call or whatever. So I pick up the phone and I'm like, I'm still wearing like the plastic protective equipment, you know, because I'm someone's holding the phone to my ear and they're literally like, oh, you have cancer. And I was like, what? I mean, I was like, what? You, who is this? You know, like, I thought it was crazy that they just called me up and told me. So of course I started crying and it took about 25 minutes before everybody realized what was going on and covered my shift and then let me go home because I couldn't just leave being a nurse. So the first person I told was my husband. Well, it was technically my charge nurse because I was like, I think they just told me I had cancer. I don't know. I'm crying. I gotta go. I gotta go to the doctor. Um, um, I probably I can't function. Like my brain just. I just couldn't. It's like I ceased to function as a nurse that moment. So I went. I obviously I went home and I talked. My husband was actually the first person other than my charge nurse that I told. Um. So um, yes, I was blindsided because I mean I knew, but you know when they do the biopsy and they tell you oh it's going to take like two weeks. It was like the longest two weeks of my life. Cause it was like, is it going to be positive? Is it, gonna be, you know, I was literally checking with them every day. Like it felt like the, the, the unknown is the part that was scary. Um, once I got my diagnosis and I sat down with my general surgeon and we made a plan, I was more calm about it. It was that, that month of time between the diagnosis and the, and the first treatment that I was kind of a wreck. Like I didn't know what to expect, all the testing. I had MRIs and ultrasounds and mammograms and biopsies and other biopsies and pathology reports and going through all of that. It was, even as a nurse, I was like, I was like, wow, there's a lot of stuff I didn't know <laughs> about cancer and the staging of cancer and the grades of cancer and the types of cancer and the location and the treatments and the treatment options and the surgery and the post-op care and the side effects of all of those things. Um, you know, I just really hadn't given it a second thought. You know, as a nurse, I educate people all the time, but 
I found myself like researching a lot for myself, which I don't know if made it better or worse, but I kind of went into that like nurse research mode. Um, let's see. Uh, so I got diagnosed on March 23rd, 2015. And I had my first treatment April 20th, 2015. And so with mine, it was early, it was 1A. So with, it depends on, you know, everybody knows, but well, maybe they don't. But if you have an early on stage, they like to do surgery first, followed by chemo. If you're a later stage, they like to start with chemo and then go on to surgery after they've shrunk the tumor. So with me, it was early. They said, okay. Um, initially, I thought I wanted to get something called a tram flap. Um, and then my, uh, I had a, a very excellent um, surgeon who advised me because I was a nurse, that would not be a good idea. I should get the deep flap because the deep flap doesn't cut the muscle and I would be doing a lot of lifting and bending, you know, once I recovered and went back into the nursing field. So we, we decided to do a deep flap where they take and they cut you hip to hip and they take all the fat and they kind of like take your breast, they cut the nipples off and then they just kind of scrape everything out of there and then they just move the fat from the bottom to the top, put it in there and then like sew you back up and then you wake up and you just have a different set of boobs than you had when you went to sleep. So that was my surgery. It was a nine hour surgery. Um, I had to spend five days in ICU because they had these little, I, I called them my headlights. They had these light things on me that were monitoring the skin flaps, but they glue in the dark and there was a man that had to sit in the room to monitor the machine. So it's like, I'm, I've got literally have headlights in the room and the man is there. And then the nurses are in and out of there. Um, you know, I thought I was pretty um, non-modest from having children, but that was that was different you know uh i was like the only person in icu awake and hearing all the screaming and not intubated you know so it that was an experience but um so we did that i had that surgery and then um after i did all my plastic surgery and everything looked beautiful they came back and said um they didn't get all the cancer they said um it looked like someone had taken a shotgun and like peppered the skin in the area. So I don't know if I, they never changed my grade or my stage of cancer, but they said that I did have it all in my skin here. So then I had to go and they had to take like a postage card size of skin off. And I had no skin there for like a few months when I had a wound vac to treat that, you know, before I could do a skin graft, I ended up doing it from my left butt cheek up to my left breast, which was another surgery plastic surgery. And then later on, I had um, nipple reconstruction where they created a nipple. And then about a year after that, I finally went to a tattoo parlor and had the nipples colors tattooed on there. So it wouldn't look weird where it's all one color. Um, so I had about like 13 surgeries in total, but they were, some of them were at the same time because I had an umbilical hernia. So they fixed that while I was under two. So I had like all these surgeries. Um, and then I started having abnormal pap smears. So then I went ahead and decided to get a hysterectomy with my tubes and ovaries because I had already had um, breast cancer. And the following year I had nice got diagnosed with appendix cancer from my routine scan. They were like, oh, uh, something's going on with your appendix. It keeps getting bigger. So they went in and did a biopsy and I had an unrelated uh, appendix cancer. So then when I started getting abnormal pap smears, I thought to myself, I'm not going to have cancer a third time. I'm just going to have and go have menopause. So um, I started uh, with menopause immediately upon surgery at 35. I woke up in menopause. So 
I took tamoxifen for like a year or two. And then my doctor said, okay, we're, we're, we're 100% menopausal. We're going to switch to, I take a nastrozole now, one milligram a day, um, which they don't tell you when you lose all your estrogen, you have like joint pain and stiffness and like hot flashes and night sweats and moodiness and you know all the stuff nobody talks about like vaginal dryness um painful um intercourse um things like that that like I, you never think of or like incontinence of your bladder like things that you didn't even wouldn't even have thought of um so i did about eight rounds of chemo after i did my surgeries I did all the surgeries they put in a portacast that ended up being that ended up being problematic. Um, the nurses couldn't use it. I had to go under fluoroscopy. I had to take Valium <laughs> because they would poke and five or six times the thing moved. It got a clot in it. They had to do a clot buster. Pretty much everything that I had done, I had difficulty with. Um, but I just kind of went with the flow. I had eight rounds of chemo. Um, after about two weeks following my first round of chemo, I completely my hair was just just falling out like in my food on the floor in the sink. It was gross, my head hurt. Um, I cried about it. I told my husband, can you just shave my head? Because I just, it just hurts. I just want it to be gone. Cause my hair was all the way to my, to my buttocks. It was like really long. And so I went ahead and cut it off. And so this is what I look like for like eight months. So I went on all these African sites and I figured out how to make head wraps. And I started doing my own head wraps with, with stuff like this, you know, like just, you know, where you tie it around your head and you twist it. So I wanted to feel like I had hair. So I would do that. And I, so I learned how to do all these cool little headrest things, you know, and I put headbands and bows and I stole all my daughter's bows and flowers and decorated everything. And I had one to match every outfit. Um, half the time I ended up going bald though, because a lot of wig, it was just too hot. It's Houston, it's Texas, it's hot, it's sweaty, you're miserable. Um, so that's that's majorly my story. Um, I learned a lot of tips and tricks about what to do for nausea, how to treat different symptoms from chemotherapy. I never had to go through radiation, but I do have a friend that gave me some pointers if I did have to go through that. Um, there's a couple products I wanted to tell you about though. Um, for people like me that are 35 and don't want to be like in menopause all the time and feel like we're dying. Um, there's a magnet I got from the UK and it's called Lady Care and you wear it in your underwear. It's just a magnet that goes on your panties and it helps with hot flashes. It's non-hormonal. Um, I recently started using um, Reverie. It's, an, it's a vaginal insert that's made from hyaluronic acid and salt. And it um, helps with um, vaginal dryness, discomfort, painful um, intercourse and stuff like that. It's non-hormonal as well. And then another thing I use for hot flashes is this. Orion makes this actine and it, um, it helps with the hot flashes too. So, I mean, I didn't change my lifestyle. Like some people like quit eating or quit using deodorant or whatever. I mean, you just can't, you can't eliminate everything. I just... I started going back to normal and enjoying things that I could enjoy and try not to get hang up on all the negativity, you know, I just I quit worrying about what other people thought that, that that's where basically where cancer got me to, they got me to back to God, back to what's important in life and not worry about what other people are thinking or saying. And, you know, so that's my story. I mean, that's the short, sweet version of my story. You know, I've, there's, there's people have 
bumps in the roads and things that, you know, whatever come up and stuff like that. But that's basically the gist of it. And they don't talk about how you gain weight either. They don't talk about how the minute that you have menopause, you gain 40 pounds, even though you're doing the same things you were doing before, you know, and everybody's like, oh, you're so fat, you know, like, what are you doing? Why are you so fat? You know, they don't, you know, it's, it's kind of rough. That's one of the long-term things that you do, you know, the, the, the weight gain and the mood swings. They don't, and the hair, my hair fell out. It came back a different color. It came back curly. I didn't have curly hair before. I had to like relearn how to do my hair. People don't talk about all that stuff because they don't know about it, you know? Yeah. So that's my, what's my major story? Okay, I just have a couple of questions. Um, how did treatment affect like your normal routine as a nurse? Did you continue working? Were you able to work? Well, because I was an ER nurse, I opted not, I could have worked, but I opted not to because I kept telling myself, I cannot go to work and then die of a cold or meningitis or tuberculosis or because a lot of times in the ER, when people come in, you don't know what they have. So we always know after the fact, we you, like, you get an email like three days later, hey, this person had, you know, tuberculosis. And well, I didn't want to die of something that I'm not knowing I'm exposing myself to. And this was before COVID. So I didn't want to wear a mask all the time either. Uh, you know, I really not a big fan of wearing masks all the time. So I just didn't work. I just, um, I ended up using uh, my short-term disability and then it rolled over to my long-term disability. And then after about eight months, I went back to work and it was like starting from scratch. I had to redo all my credentials, get back in the swing of things. And it, when I first went back, I was emotional. So I cried a lot and I got a lot of negative feedback from a lot of my coworkers about, you know, you get to keep it together. You can't be crying. You know, you can't do this. You can't. They didn't understand what I was going through. They didn't understand. I didn't understand the brain fog and the and the, the, the tiredness and the confusion and not just not being able to figure out what's going on and not being able to process all my emotions of going back into that stressful environment after being out for eight months, you know? So I just took eight months off and went back to work. Yeah. How did others react to you like during or after treatment, I guess? Well, there was like two camps. There was like the camp of, oh my gosh, let me come and bring you some food. Let me check in on you, let me, um, you know, stop by. And then there were the people that just disappeared. Like they weren't comfortable talking about death or talking about treatment. So they just didn't talk about it. And they, they just pretended like I didn't exist. So another thing that my husband said I should mention is that um, people think, you know, we think about all the medical, but we don't think about people who have children. We don't think about what that person's gonna do and how they're gonna take care of their children. So obviously I wasn't working. And so I couldn't just afford to pay a babysitter, you know, all day, every day. Cause my kids were two and four years old. They weren't even in school. Uh, my son was in pre-K. I mean, he was in pre-K, you know, but um, so I had, my husband had to work all the time to pay, you know, for my treatment. So I basically would just holler at my children from the couch, like, Hey, stop fighting. You know, I'd have to crawl around and just make myself do things, make myself make food, make myself clean their clothes, make myself clean up after them. You know, I was tired, but it kept me going. It got me, it didn't give, let me get into a funk or depression, you know, cause I didn't have time. I, I was just busy with my kids, you know, but that was a lot of a cost that I would have accumulated if I would have had to pay for childcare because there's no, there's no real program or treatment or help 
for that portion of it. You know, I have people sign me up for meal train. We had food every day. I had so much food. I was sharing it with my neighbors. I mean, that was not a problem. People were offering to give me rides to treatment. It was the childcare that was an issue, you know? Yeah. There's a lot of things like we don't think about it. Just, it. You just don't think about it until you're like, oh my gosh, I can't even barely get off this couch. And these kids are tearing this house up. My house looked like a wreck, you know, and you don't want to call somebody. I mean, even having nurse friends, I had a hard time getting somebody to come to my house to help me with a dressing change. You know, yeah. I was just crying all the time. Like nobody will come help me. Nobody wanted to look at my butt, you know, <laughs> nobody wanted yeah. to help me with that, but I couldn't see back there. But I did get a paramedic friend that came and she came every time to help me, you know, so I try to make sure if I know somebody that I offer my services to them because I know what it was like feeling yeah. helpless and not having any help yeah. or not wanting to ask for help because you're embarrassed because you're proud or embarrassed or whatever. Yeah. I thought that the nurses would be more sympathetic, but it, it seems like it seems like they were almost a little more abrasive about it. Yeah. You know, oh, you got the good cancer or you got the mommy makeover on insurance. You know, the dumb comments that people make when you have cancer and they don't think about how it affects you. Yeah, people don't really get it unless they've gone through it. Um, all right, I think that will be the end of this episode. So if you want to hear the rest of Cherie's um, interview and actually have her answer some questions for us, come back to the podcast for our next episode.